first. This is not good news. Paris Swade, Liberty Writers News, has been officially accepted. The North Korean state-run Asian news agency reported moments ago that North Korea will turn up all the journalists and Let's uh, begin with prayer this morning as we open up our, our, to our third truth. God, we, uh, we invite you into this space and this time. We, uh, we open our hearts again, God, to be uh, reminded of what's most important and to, uh, to live out what we say we believe, God. This morning, God, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I've been so, having so much fun preaching this series, and I, I think part of the passion and joy that's coming is just the, uh, the, the, how, how important I think this series is and how bold I believe, uh, how boldly I want to preach and how much I believe in these simple truths. Week one, I was excited to talk about how the Bible tells the truth, uh, that it isn't propaganda like so many other books we tend to read or sources of information. It's trying to get us someplace. Yes, scripture has an arc and a story and and it reminds us who we are, but it tells the nitty gritty details about all those characters of faith that we've idolized sometimes and not seen the messy parts as much as the good. Last week, we talked about the simple truth that all humans are created in God's image. And that impacts the way that we treat people if we truly believe that to be the case. So this whole series is really based on that premise. There's some really important things that are true in our world But what matters is not that we conceptualize them in a certain way or we could pass a test if we were asked a yes or no question about these truths. If we really believe them, what it means is that our values will change, our priorities will change, our actions will align with what we say we believe. So today I want to talk about a third truth. And I want to tell you this morning, I struggle, I think, most to write this sermon in the series because I think it's one I struggle to believe most. It's not that I wouldn't, couldn't pass a test if I were, somebody were to ask me what I believed about this topic. I would say the right thing. But like I have said throughout the series, if this does not bear itself out into our actions, I would question whether we really believe it or not. Because belief leads to a change in behavior. If I love my wife, it means that certain actions accompany on that, not just words. So this morning, I want to share with you a truth that I... I'm preaching as much to myself, I believe, as anyone, I, because I struggle to demonstrate this truth in my life. In fact, if I were hearing this series, I think I'd want to give the most pushback to this sermon. If you might like me, you might want to do the same. And, and, and so to, before the sermon this morning, I just want to let you know, I, I wrote a letter of complaint to the elders about the sermon I'm about to preach, um, saying that I'm not sure I agree with what I'm about to say, or at least I'm living it. So if you want to add your name to the list, just come up. It'll be on the table after service, and I'll make sure it gets to the elders this week. I, I'm somewhat joking, but I really am serious. I, I, I don't know how well I live this out. I want to do better. And so I'm preaching to myself as I say, share with you what simple truth number three is. And here's the third simple truth. We are saved by grace through faith. And that grace is more powerful than all the worst of the sins that we have committed. God's grace covers it all. And I cannot tell you how much of my effort and behavior is a result of my failure to believe that truth. There's a couple of reasons why I struggle to believe this truth. The first of those really has more to be with the makeup of who I am and who I'm created to be. My personality is that of a perfectionist. 
Uh, My gift to the world, which many wouldn't call a gift, is to call out every imperfection and flaw that I see and try to make it better. And uh, that's a really good thing, uh, except when you're married to a person like that, it becomes pretty hard, right? Or when you're in, in a friendship with someone. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking to you about because you're one of those persons who's connected closely with someone who is a perfectionist. That, that is my gift. And, and there are certain professions where we want people to be perfectionists, right? When you get on an airline, you want to know that the engineers of that plane were perfectionists. Tell the truth about all the flaws. In fact, that 45-minute wait isn't such a problem when you know someone's on the other end trying to fix and help you get where you need to go. From the womb, this is my natural bent toward the world. And as a perfectionist, this grace stuff is really troubling because what I tend to think is the more we preach grace, the less we're going to correct the flaws that are there in our lives, right? The more we depend on God's grace, we say, well, all is grace, everything is good, then my worry is that that we might not make the world better, that we might not be transformed ourselves fully as God wants us to be. The second reason I struggle to believe in the grace of God is because of the religious tradition that I grew up in. I grew up in churches of Christ. And we don't have a corner on the market. We're not the only ones by far. But growing up in a church of Christ as a perfectionist is like growing up as a drunk born in a bar, right? Like, like we, this is who we are in so many ways. We, in fact, what we believe and what we try to live out is if we could just perfect church practice, if we could go back to the way the first century church was and do things just as they did it, then unity would be the result of that perfect pursuit. So as a perfectionist, what do you do, right? You tinker and you try to make things the way that they once were. The problem is we're a unity movement that's divided. In many ways, our movement didn't work the project we were about. And we aren't the only perfectionistic group of believers out there. We don't have a monopoly. But when I hear a phrase like, we're saved by grace through faith, or God's grace covers it all, my first impulse for my personality and from the sermons I heard growing up and lessons is to add a clause that says, but... Yes, the grace of God is powerful, but there's a caveat that always has to come along with that. When I hear someone focusing on, my, on grace, I, I, my wheels are turning so fast to hear what they might be leaving out or to hear what needs to be added to that statement that I never fully hear the message of grace in the first place. How many of you can relate to any of this? This week, as I wrote the sermon, there were some arguments that came to mind very quickly. Yes, we're, we're saved by grace through faith, but there is that unforgivable sin that's in scripture. And we got to remind ourselves of that. Yes, we're saved by grace through faith, but you can lose your salvation. I want to assure you of this. We're saved by grace through faith, but if we preach grace too boldly, then that transformation is not going to come in our lives like it needs to. Yes, grace, but. Yes, grace, but. Just for today, though, I want to ask you to quiet those caveats. I want to ask you to stop those wheels turning, trying to come up with a second clause. I want to ask you to silence that inner critic that's always present with me as a a perfectionist. I want to beg you to listen to the message of grace proclaimed boldly, without the comma. Because this is a simple truth. Listen, uh, this morning as I share, I want to share several different places through the New Testament where Paul talks about the grace of God. It's 
part of the ministry he's trying to offer to these churches, some dealing with legalism and, and works righteousness. He's trying to give them the message of grace that's so important. And I want to start in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, if you would turn there with me. Listen to these words, Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. This is true, isn't it? We're all hopeless without the grace of God that enters into our lives. We're not enough on our own. Death is the result of the sin that we engage in. But let's keep reading in verse four. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Salvation is not something we can accomplish. Salvation is something that Jesus has already accomplished on our behalf. We are saved by grace through faith. So what is grace? Well, there's many ways to define it. I want to define it this way this morning. Grace is that which is freely and generously given. Grace is finding favor in the eyes of the Lord. Grace is a gift. I want to read verses 8 and 9 again just to draw, draw, drive us this point home again. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Listen closely to this good news this morning. There is no boasting for those of us who have received the grace of God. It's not the result of anything we've done. We're not any more special than anyone else. There's no boasting except in the cross of Christ. That's what we preach. We preach Christ crucified. We thank God for the gift that only could be received through him. And so our response to this gift that God offers is gratitude. This is what we're teaching our kids as much as we possibly can. That when they receive a gift, there's a response in our culture. It's two words. Thank you. And it goes a long ways. And when we come in on, to worship on Sunday mornings, this is what we're doing with God, isn't it? We come together to sing songs. And when we sing songs, what we're saying is, God, thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for the grace that you have provided. We're reminding ourselves of the story of what God has done in our lives. And so we sing our songs to God as a sign of gratitude. We Come to remind ourselves of what we've received. Turn with me, if you would, to another letter that Paul writes in Romans. Romans chapter 3 is where I want to read from this morning. Paul writes a similar message about a similar gift of grace to the Roman, Roman Christians. I want to start in Romans 3 verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Sounds like a similar message, doesn't it? 
Everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of God's glory. But the fix is not to perfect our behavior. It's not to somehow earn or pay God back for the sin that we have been involved with. All have sinned. And all are justified through the gift of God and his grace. He picks this up again in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. How many of you feel like you're standing on the foundation of grace? What a powerful image. We aren't groveling for the grace of God. We're not perfecting ourselves to deserve this gift. For those who have faith in Jesus, we have now gained access to stand in the grace of of God. Isn't this good news? Paul talks about the grace of God over and over again in his letters. Another place I want to take us is to the book of Galatians. Galatians is a, uh, dealing with some issues around legalism and around the works of the law and trying to earn in some ways. There's a, there's a faction among them that are preaching a different gospel. This is what Paul writes to the church that's struggling through these things. This is Galatians 2 verse 21 and following. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are, we, are, are, are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of of the flesh. So the church is dealing with this legalistic fashion that wants to earn, that wants to, to follow the law that thinking they can justify themselves. It's a legalistic gospel that adds demands beyond the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what legalism is. Let me say first what it's not. Legalism is not believing in the commands of Jesus and teaching them and seeking to live by them. Legalism is not coming to believe in the truth of God. Legalism is adding something to the gospel. The, good, the gospel of the good news of the death it is the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the moment we add any hurdle, any obstacle, anything beyond that to the gospel of Jesus, it's a perversion of the gospel. We are heaping unnecessary burdens on people. And that is legalism. Some of you know that well because you remember that kind of world. Maybe the world that you grew up in in some ways. The teaching that you received. Church, we are saved by grace through faith. And every part of me wants to add caveats to this this morning. Every part of me wants to add a comma and a but and another phrase. But this is the message I want to preach this morning. It's the message I need to hear most. And to those of you who are nervous about this, like I am, we must understand the sufficiency of God's grace in our lives. Earlier, I talked about my concern that if we preach grace too strongly, then people might get the sense that they can do anything. And that if God forgives sin, maybe he loves to do it. So let's just keep sinning. This is the sentiment that Paul writes to in Romans 6, where someone's writing to him saying, should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? If you love giving grace, God, we can provide you more opportunities. Paul says, no, you've missed and misunderstood what this is about. I want to share a passage with you that is a startling passage because it, interrupts all my assumptions about grace, but Paul writes a word to Titus that I want to share with you this morning that I think will give you hope and maybe help turn the lens a little bit from what you grew up with if you grew up in this kind of legalistic experience. Titus 2, 
Beginning in verse 11, uh, the first verse is similar to what Paul said other places we've read this morning. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Normal stuff, right? That's what we've been sharing. But listen to verse 12, powerful. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. What does Paul say is the power that helps us say no to ungodliness? Well, I would have never guessed this. The it there is referring to verse 11, the grace of God. It's not our willpower that leads us to ungodliness. It's not our legalistic teaching that leads us to uh, to, to say no to ungodliness. That power is not found in a weakened message of grace, afraid to preach it because people might feel licensed to go after it. No, the answer to ungodliness is to preach even more boldly in the grace of Jesus Christ. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? Because all my life, I've wanted to give caveats because my fear was if you preach grace, then people are going to go off doing whatever they want. But what Paul says is, no, the message of grace is the very thing that leads us to self-control. It's the very thing that leads us to say no to ungodliness. Transformation is, not, is a result of grace just as much as our justification. Do we believe that? Again, if, if you don't, sign my letter because I'm struggling with this, right? I, I don't know that I believe that. I'm fearful to preach a message of grace. I want to give every caveat, but, but Paul says, no, if you want people to say no to ungodliness, preach the grace of Jesus Christ. The power that empowers us to live a godly life is the grace of God. All my life, I've been convinced that grace is what saved us, but there's something else that has to bring this work of transformation. And I want to submit, of course, it's the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, but it's the grace of God that helps us say no to ungodliness. I wish I had had that truth in my life at certain moments when I was trying to say no, and all I knew was to try harder. All I knew was to memorize certain verses and remind myself of what would happen if I didn't follow. What if I leaned into the grace of God in those moments? What if I'd been reminded of what I'd been forgiven from and it was out of the gratitude of that that I saw transformation possible? Round out this teaching on grace, I want to close with one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I say that a lot, but I have a lot of them. So but this is one of them. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. I want to begin in verse 1. Listen to these powerful words. And this morning, if maybe you're having a hard time believing or trusting in this gospel of grace, just listen so closely if you would. If, if, if you're having a hard time believing God could love you right now in this season, or maybe you've, you've done things that would take you away from God and his love, I, I want to remind you of the truth that Paul writes here. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's a power packed set of verses. It says the law was powerless to do what Christ Jesus has now done for us. There's now no condemnation. Who wants to say amen this morning? That's a place to do it. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. And some of you need that message today desperately because you live with a constant sense of condemnation. 
You live with a constant question in your mind. If the God of the universe could actually love you, could receive you, could actually offer grace to have you into the family of God, the answer is yes. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's grace is powerful. And if you are in Christ, you do not stand condemned. You have been saved by the grace of God. You are no longer condemned or justified by the perfection of your behavior. You are not condemned. You are children of the most high God. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're no less than that. He goes even farther at the end of chapter eight, verse 31. Oh, this is an incredible news. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced. Are you convinced of these things? I hope you are. That neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. No caveats, no ifs, no buts. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We are saved by grace through faith. And that grace is larger than our greatest moment of failure. God does not remember you by your worst moment. Let that sink in. Some of us think that our worst moment is the moment that God remembers us most by. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. You are not your worst moment. There is nothing beyond Jesus that saves us. No effort, no perfection. Any gospel that demands more for salvation is legalism. And I struggle to believe that. There's something in me that wants to be justified without needing anything from outside of myself. To be justified without God's grace. There's something in me that wants to compare myself to others and believe that I am more worthy of God's love than others who need God's love as well. There's part of me that wants to earn God's favor, but that is a misunderstanding of grace. Grace cannot be earned. It is only given. It is only received. It's all gift. And any discomfort with the gospel of grace I've just preached is a result to see things clearly. It's a failure to see things clearly. It's a failure to see ourselves as we truly are. Because if I'm honest, and I ought to be since I'm preaching a series on the truth, right? Even on my best days, there are people that I hope God excludes from heaven. Like Jonah, I... I fear preaching the grace of God to certain people, not because they'll judge me or respond poorly to me, because I'm afraid if I preach the message of grace, they might just respond. Be honest. You probably got a list too, don't you? And I like the grace of God because you know what? I need it in my life. And I like the justice of God because I think some other people need to have the justice of God. 
I think they need to hear and receive the punishment. I want God to judge me on my best intentions, and I want God to judge others on their worst moment. And that is wrong. It's wrong because it's forgetful. It's selective amnesia. It's to believe the best about myself and assume the worst about others. When we slip into believing that we deserve the grace of God and others don't, we are not seeing things clearly. We don't deserve anything from God, church. He doesn't owe us a thing. But when I remember clearly, I realize that I don't actually want God to be fair. Because if God was fair, it would mean I'm on the outside of this thing too. Fairness is based on merit. And if salvation is based on merit, I don't stand a chance. Because there's nothing I can do to earn the favor of God. But because of Jesus' death and resurrection, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I desperately want my children to believe these truths sooner than I learned them. I want them to know that they are saved by grace through faith. I want them to know that God does not judge them by their worst moment. I want them to know that as far as they are and as far as they leave, and that day will come from the commands that we've taught them, that God can cover even those things if their hearts are repentant to turn to him. Our God's the God of the prodigal son's story, isn't he? It's the father who, who comes toward us. And I want my kids to know that desperately because there were moments in my life I questioned if he was really that good. And the truth is, it's not just my kids I hope know that. I desperately want each and every one of you to know that truth as well. I want everyone in our county to know that truth. I want everyone in the entire world to know that truth. I want every single person to know the God who's the God above all gods, who's loved and created us and longs to be merciful toward us. He is defined this way, isn't he? A God of steadfast love. Church, we are not God's bouncers. We're God's welcoming committee. Isn't that an image for you, right? At times, I felt like my job was to be God's bouncer. It was to stand up and beat my chest and act like you're not welcome here if you don't do these things. No, we're God's welcoming committee. We welcome people into this place. We, we invite them to respond to the message of Christ. This is the incredible news of the gospel that I missed somehow, but it's the center of what it's all about. We are God's welcoming committee. Our judgment is a misunderstanding of what we have received. And if you feel the need to keep people away from the grace of God, just remember back to that moment you needed it most. If this was about justice and fairness, none of us would stand a chance. And God's grace is the refusal to seek justice and fairness. It's a gift that is the opposite of what we deserve. God's grace is reckless. What would it be like This is a question I want to consider this this week. What would it take for our church to become a place where God's grace is always on tap? Where you can pull up a seat no matter what it is to the bar, and we welcome you with this lavish grace that God provides. What if we trusted grace to do what we think only sometimes teaching and legalism can do? To trust that actually it's the very thing that could bring people to the kingdom of God to see what's best. Maybe we've misunderstood the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Maybe you've misunderstood 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. I still remember back to a moment. I was on a ski trip. It was our senior year of high school. I'd been baptized several years ago, but my best friend at the time hadn't been baptized. And, and I was having that conversation with him about, what, you know, I know you believe in Jesus. Why is it that you've not made this commitment? I think it's an important commitment. Why? Why not? And, and I remember him saying so clearly, I, I just haven't gotten my life in order enough yet to commit my life to Jesus. And I didn't really even know how to counter that in the moment, honestly. And he ended up making that decision a few years later. But how many of us may be in that place right now? It may be that we made a commitment years ago, but we, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt we've done things that God would never forgive. That we're on his bad side, that maybe suffering's come into our lives and we've asked the question, maybe, maybe it's my fault and God's mad at me. What I want to tell you is this God, he loves you. He's jealous for you. He longs for you to know the love he has, the path that he lays out that is the path of wisdom. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Your worst moment does not define you. And the the, the deal with baptism is not you get it all together and then God takes you when you get cleaned up. Now, the invitation is an invitation to say, I can't get this right. And repentance is not saying, well, now I've turned around and I'm on the right path. It's it's to say, I I can't think the way I've thought anymore. I've I've gone mad. I'm living a way that's not the best way of life. And God, would you redirect that? Baptism is a... It's a public commitment of an inward decision, isn't it? It, It's a commitment just like marriage is to have a date on the calendar. Because in that moment when you're making vows, when you're getting married, you go from being single to being married. There's, There's this specific moment. And you remember back to that and you celebrate that moment. And there are others that were there that were witnesses to that, that call you back to the vows and the covenant you made. This is what baptism is. Baptism is our public way of making a line in the sand saying today is the day. Today is the day I no longer depend on my own righteousness or pretend like I can be good enough or that God could never receive me. It's it's the day we say, no, 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 I can't do this on my own, God. Only you can can save me. And that's my desire is that I'd be set on the path of righteousness, God. But I'm going to trust in your grace to do that and not my own effort. So this morning we want to invite you. We want to invite you to that. The simple truth is this. We're saved by grace through faith. 